evidence and answers. Today's scientists unanimously agree that the universe has a beginning in an event called the Big Bang. The origin of the universe is one of the most compelling scientific evidences for the existence of God. At a recent Evidence and Answers conference in Hawaii, Dr. Ross explained how the origin of the universe builds a compelling case for the God of the Bible. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Dr. Hugh Ross began explaining five scientific reasons for God. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You'll see all of the messages displayed. The title for today is Cosmic Reasons for God. You can download it or listen online. Today, we will continue this message. And unless you've got two planets colliding at just the right time, at just the right orbit from its host star, of just the right mass and composition, you will not have a planet with water uh, or an atmosphere. And so that's the latest habitability requirement uh, that's been discovered. But in the case of the moon, we've identified 22 distinct features of the moon that must be fine-tuned for advanced light to be possible here on Earth. So one of the things we've done at Reasons to Believe since 1995 is actually to go through these characteristics of our galaxy and our planetary system and say how many attributes must be exquisitely fine-tuned and we've actually gone to the trouble of calculating what is the probability that we would find a body anywhere in the entire universe that would have the necessary characteristics for life and by the way this is to get microbes we're not talking human beings just to get microbes on a planet what is the probability if there is no supernatural intervention. So just say it's all naturalistic, and that probability back in 1995 was less than one chance in 10 to the 31st power. 2006, less than one chance in 10 to the 556th power. You wanna know where it is now? It's less than one chance in 10 to the 1,000th power. Now, numbers like that tend to be mind-boggling for people who haven't taken advanced mathematics, so I'll try to break that down for you. In California, we have this very lucrative lottery where you can win literally a half billion dollars, uh, but the odds of you winning are not very good. Well, to put this in context, one chance in 10 to the 1,000th power is a probability that you would win the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you buy just one ticket each time. Or as a mathematician friend of mine told me, it's indistinguishable from winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you don't buy any tickets at all. <laughs> now this has caught the attention of a number of physicists who've dug deeper than just the scale of the universe. One is Freeman Dyson, and he wrote in his book, uh, Disturbing the Universe. The more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. Now, what he's referring to is this. We astronomers have no access to the present. My wife is sitting here. I keep telling her, look, I'm an astronomer. I can't be held accountable for the present. All my data comes from the past. 
So, for example, when we look at the sun, we don't see it as it is now. We see it as it was eight minutes ago because it took light that long uh, to reach our telescopes. And the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. Now, one of the remarkable fine-tuned characteristics, we humans are living at the only time in the history of the universe and living in the only location within the universe where it's possible for astronomers to look far away and look all the way back to the cosmic creation event. We literally can directly observe the universe being created. Now, I've been accused of exaggerating, so it's not that we can get exactly to time equals zero, but I can show you images of what the universe looks like when the universe was 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And it's our capacity to directly observe the cosmic creation event which gives us some of the most rigorous, compelling scientific evidence that a God beyond space and time must have designed the universe for existence. Hey, you want to read more about this? You can get my book, The Crater in the Cosmos, 4th edition. You go to reasons.org slash Ross, you can get a free chapter. You don't have to buy the book, you can get a free chapter. And chapter 15 is a chapter we're giving away, which basically reviews all this fine-tuned design evidence and gives you the citations to the papers. And by the way, we give you links so you can go directly to the papers. And this is my latest book, Design to the Core. You can also get a free chapter of that book. And what I do in this book is basically show you how every component of the universe and every event in the history of the universe our galaxy, our cluster of galaxies, our planetary system, every component, every event must be fine-tuned to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. Okay, I'm going to transition to what is the biggest point of objection. Now, I've debated Michael Shermer, the ex executive director of the Skeptic Society, four times in four different public university campuses. And uh, you know, the debates are always about scientific evidence for God. Does the cosmos really reveal God? But it doesn't matter what the debate title is. What Michael Shermer does when he gets his chance to speak, he goes straight to Genesis, he ignores everything I've said, ignores the universe, ignores the planetary system. He goes straight to Genesis because he believes the early chapters of Genesis are the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. He really views those early chapters as a killer of Christianity. My experience is different. It was those early chapters of Genesis that were a huge factor in my coming to faith in Christ. And what I notice in my debates with Michael Shermer is that he begins with the wrong point of view. And it was Galileo who said the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong viewpoint. And what we notice in Genesis chapter 1, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Michael always brings up the point, the Bible gets it wrong in the very first sentence. Because we know the universe was created before the earth was created. I find it amusing he uses the word create. Okay. <laughs> but what he doesn't realize is there's no word for universe in biblical Hebrew. Instead, it uses this phrase, shamayen arrests with the definite articles. You'll see that used 13 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to the totality of physical reality. 
So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means in the beginning, God created the universe of matter, energy, space, and time. And you see this portrayed in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.3, the universe that we can detect was made from that which we cannot detect. But we can detect matter, energy, space, and time. But when you move to Genesis 1-2, it changes the point of view from the universe to the surface of the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which means we're to interpret the six days of creation from the point of view, the frame of reference of an observer on the surface of Earth's waters, below the clouds, not above the clouds. Now again, I've met many scientists who think Genesis teaches scientific nonsense. That's because they think that God is telling us a story from above the clouds, and I agree with them. If that's the point of view, it's all scientific nonsense. Genesis 1-2, hovering over the surface of the waters. So if you remember nothing else about Genesis 1 that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, remember the point of view for the six creation days is the surface of Earth's ocean. Genesis 1-2 also gives you the initial conditions. It tells you water covers the whole surface of the Earth. It's dark on the surface of the waters, and earth is empty of life and unfit for life. Now, the darkness is affirmed by the parallel account in the book of Job. Three biblical accounts parallel Genesis 1. Psalm 104, Job 37, 38, and 39, and Proverbs 8. But in the book of Job, this is what it says about the early earth. God speaks, and he says, I made the clouds its garment, and wrapped it in thick darkness, it referring to the seas that cover the whole surface of the earth. So it's telling us it's dark because, not because there wasn't any light. Light pervaded the universe when God created the universe. In the beginning, the universe was filled with light. It was dark on the surface of the waters of planet earth because the primordial clouds were opaque to light. No light could get through. I mentioned earlier how Earth's origin was one of two rocky planets colliding. When those two rocky planets collided, Earth's atmosphere got thinned out. Our atmosphere was 200 times thicker before that collision event than after the collision event. And so with that collision event, we got a thin atmosphere, and now light could pass through to the surface of the waters. And this is what you see on creation day one. Let there be light. Note carefully, it does not say that God created the light. It doesn't say that God made the light. It says, let the light be. God had already created light in the beginning. But now the light of the cosmos can come through to the surface of the waters. And with that light, photosynthesis can begin. Because the other things you see in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering. And the Hebrew verb there is basically, is only used one other time in the Bible, referring to a female eagle bringing her newly hatched eggs uh, to life. So I believe this is where the Bible has the origin of life, the beginning of creation day one. Then we move into creation day two. It's the briefest of all the accounts. Basically what it says is, let there be water above and water below. And this has been a subject of intense debate amongst Bible scholars and theologians. 
In my opinion, the debate is easily resolved by going to Job 37 and 38. Here we have one sentence in Genesis 1 on the events of creation day 2, but in the book of Job you get a chapter and a half. And what do you get in Job 37 and 38? A detailed description of the miracles God performed to set up a stable, complex water cycle. And what does it tell us? This water cycle is composed of multiple forms of liquid precipitation and multiple forms of frozen precipitation and how we need all these different forms in order to have human beings thriving on the whole of the surface of the earth. I mean, there's melting snow at the equator and melting ice at the equator that provides the water supply for the nation of Ecuador. And even here in Hawaii, you can get frost when it's 44 degrees uh, above uh, you know, 44 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, that frost provides a water supply. And then we move into uh, the third creation day, and this is where dry ground appears for the first time. You know, we begin with nothing but water on the surface of the earth, and then the continents begin to form. I remember reading this when I was 17 years of age and realizing, you know, my geology textbooks tell me that the continents have always been here, but they never gave any reasons why. They just assumed they'd always been here. Then I entered the University of British Columbia, and there I had the opportunity to take the very first course taught, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the entire world on plate tectonics. And it was taught by two of the three professors that launched the discipline of plate tectonics. And in that course that I took in the 1960s, this is what they said about the buildup of the continental land masses. And I remember going up to one of the two professors afterwards and saying, I notice you got the start point at about 7 or 8%. Is it possible it could be 0%? His answer was, it could be anywhere between 0 and 10%. So I said, well, maybe the Bible got it right after all. And then come the year 2000, papers were published where they basically said, this is how the continental land masses began to grow. They realized there was a, a connection between the oxygenation of the atmosphere and the buildup of the continental land masses and how Earth actually started off as a water world. But the first oxygenation event, you got a dramatic uh, growth of the continental land masses. I remember looking at that saying, the Bible puts at the beginning of creation day three. Notice the latest scientific evidence is putting it a little bit earlier than halfway through the history of planet Earth. Then in 2018, they said, well, it's actually much more dramatic than that. This is how it really looks. The first oxygenation event plays a far bigger role than we'd ever conceded of before. I show you these diagrams basically to make the point, the more we learn about the geophysics of the Earth, the tighter and tighter fit we get with what the Bible declared thousands of years ago. And if you want to read all the science behind this, it's in an article I wrote for lay people. I put out an article every week called Today's New Reason to Believe in the June 11th, 2018 article, which is up on our website, gives you the scientific background for all of that. Creation Day 4. It says, let there be lights in the sky. And again, notice it says, let there be. It doesn't say create. It doesn't say make. Let there be the lights in the sky. But if you read the rest of verse 14, it says, let there be great lights in the sky to serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. 
And who are those signs for? It's signs for the animals that God creates on day five and day six. Up until day five, all we got on planet Earth are microbes. Microbes have to thrive on the Earth for three billion years in order to chemically transform our planet into an environment where animals and plants can exist. There's a reason why you only have microbes for the first three billion years. Because our planet begins with a huge quantity of soluble metals, which would be deadly for the plants and animals. It's the microbes that transform those soluble metals into insoluble metals. Insoluble metals that today we can mine uh, to launch our civilization and technology. So let there be lights in the sky. And it's animals and only animals that need to see the positions of the sun, moon, and stars in the sky to regulate their biological clocks. I got to meet some of you earlier who were studying uh, biology. And as a biologist, you'll recognize animals are unique and that they have these circadian clocks that are regulated by the position of the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. Well, we now have a detailed history of the oxygenation of Earth's atmosphere. It was like one ten-thousandth of what it was for the first couple of billion years. Then you had the first great oxygenation event, which was responsible for the growth of the continental land masses. Then it dropped back down to less than 1%. And all this is fine if you're a microbe, but at 1%, it's not possible with plants and animals. And a beginning about uh, 650 million years ago, it began to slowly rise from less than 1% up to about 2%. And at 580 million years ago, right after the last great slush ball event, Earth has had several slush ball events. That's where 80% plus of the planet gets covered with ice. And the release from that last slush ball event caused the oxygen content in our atmosphere to explosively rise from 2% up to 8%. 8% is the minimum oxygen that's necessary for animals to exist. So it jumps up to 8%. I'll talk about that in a minute. But what happened a couple of years ago is some physicists said, let's do a flask experiment. And so they had this gigantic flask and they filled it with the atmospheric composition of the Earth and then they gradually induced more and more oxygen to see what would happen. And when it was less than 1% oxygen, you couldn't see through the flask. The haze was so thick you couldn't see through the flask. And then they gradually put more and more oxygen in. And I'm gonna basically simulate for you what they saw in that experiment. So beginning at 1% uh, oxygen, this is what you would see. And basically I'm showing what you would see of a mountain that's less than a third of a mile away. So with 1% oxygen, here's a mountain a third of a mile away, you can't see a thing and then you move the oxygen content to 2%, and now you can barely make out that there's something in the, the haze there that's beginning to appear, and then you jump it up to about 4% oxygen, and now we can begin to see more and more, and uh, here we're getting close to 6%, and when it hits 8%, for the first time, you can see something in the sky. Okay, here we are at 8%, and there's the moon. But until you get to 8%, you can't see the sun, moon, or the stars. And so it took that oxygen to make these animals possible. It also took that oxygen to make it possible 
for the sun, moon, and stars to be visible in the sky. And yes, I wrote an article on that. That's today's new reason to believe, the June 18th, uh, 2018 edition. But here's kind of the bottom line. I've written a book on this, Navigating Genesis, basically taking through all 10 events of Genesis chapter 1. But once we understand that this word yom that's translated day, and incidentally, as I read through Genesis 1 for the first time when I was 17 years of age, I immediately recognized that the word day must have at least three distinct literal definitions because three are used on the first page. Creation day one is using the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four is using the word day for 24 hours, seasons, days, and years. Genesis 2-4, it uses the word day for the entirety of creation history. That's day as a long, finite period of time. And I realized, too, these days are all bracketed uh, by an evening and a morning. I wasn't sure at age 17 what the Hebrew words for evening and morning were, but I knew at a minimum it was telling me each day's got a start time and it's got an end time. I thought there would also be an evening and a morning for the seventh day. There is no evening morning for the seventh day. It's missing from the text, which tells me the seventh day has a beginning, but it doesn't have an ending. And this is affirmed in both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, which exhort us to live our lives in such a way that we can enter into God's seventh day. And then a part of my story was that I got interested in astronomy when I was seven. I mean, really interested. I was bringing home five books on physics and astronomy per week from a library that had over three million volumes. And my parents were worried that I was getting obsessive about astronomy. I don't know where they got that from, but they were concerned. And so when I was 11 years of age, they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. I was the only one in the family that read it. But I remember going to my parents and saying, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't work. We have all these uh, phyla and orders and classes and families appearing before humanity, but nothing like that happens after humanity. I said, can you tell me why? They said, no, go talk to your science teachers. My science teachers say, go talk to those science professors, you know. Nobody could give me an answer. But when I first picked up Genesis 1, they gave me an answer. For six days, God creates. That explains all the phyla and classes and orders and families that suddenly show up before we humans exist. And then the seventh day is when God stops creating. So that explains why we don't see it today. And again, those of you in the life sciences, your professors may have told you, we see no evidence for the supernatural handiwork of God in biology. That statement is correct if you're talking the human era and explains why you have more paleontologists uh, that believe in God than people who are doing field biology research. The field biologists, they're doing their research on God's seventh day. The paleontologists, they're doing their research during the six days of uh, creation. But back to the story, just recognizing that Yom is an epoch and that the reference frame is Earth's surface, Genesis 1 gets a score of 10 for 10 on the accuracy of the description of the creation events, and it gets a score of 10 for 10 on the chronological sequence of those events. It also gets a score of 4 for 4 correct on the initial conditions. Now, part of my journey was looking at the other religions. The best I've found outside of the Bible 
was the Enuma Elisha, the Babylonians. It describes 14 events of creation and gets two out of 14 correct. Now, last time I checked, that doesn't give you a passing grade. What about the other creation stories? They all got a score of zero. The Enuma Elish got two out of 14. Only the Bible got a perfect score. And if you want to read about the details of that, scientifically and exegetically, it's in my book, uh, Navigating Genesis. But here's the bottom line. The more we learn about science, the more reasons we gain to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Job and Psalms. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.